0: We'll be in John chapter 12, picking it up in verse 36. And there is no way around this being a heavy passage. Uh, And it's heavy for a few different reasons. It's heavy because some of this, I think, is difficult to understand. It's heavy because once you understand it, that truth is heavy. And there's also some heavy good news here. So with that being said, let's go ahead and turn our attention. Two verse thirty-six. It says, "When Jesus had said these things, so this is what uh, David led us in discussion of last week. He's talked about. He's coming onto the home stretch of his uh, ministry here on Earth, beginning Passion Week. Um, the, the 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 wolves have begun to gather, so to speak. After he said these things and made these statements, he departed and hid himself from them. So again, there Jesus has things on the exact time schedule that he wants." But then what we have in the passage that follows, the first point is really more organizational in nature, and it kind of describes this entire section. So let me go ahead and give it to you. And it is the unbelief of the Jews, and then its explanation. So that's what this is going to be about. Take a look at this, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now we're going to see what the uh, prophet Isaiah prophesied in just a moment. But I want to go ahead and kind of dig into this idea here. <clears throat> because I do not think that it is inconsequential. That John begins his explanation of their unbelief where he does. I think that is 100% intentional. Because what he's going to Reveal here, both through this inspired statement, and then also through this quotation from hundreds of years before, quoting Isaiah, he's going to show the multidimensionality, making up a word there, of their unbelief, that there is a human aspect to it, and there is a divine aspect to it. If you want to think of it like this, in more layman's terms, what he's talking about here is he is talking about what happened, the Jews, in large scale, did not trust in Jesus, and then why it happened. Now, this quote from Isaiah, though, is important because he pulls from two different passages, and we'll dig into this in just a little bit, but he's going to pull from Isaiah 53, which is called the suffering servant narrative, and also, in verse 40, he's going to quote from Isaiah 6, verse 10, which is the passage where we learn uh, where Isaiah encounters God and he sees that Jesus is, is high and lifted up and the train of the road, his road filled the temple and all those things. And so it's very significant that John is quoting from Isaiah not just to explain, hey, what is happening here with these Jews is what was prophesied long ago. So you have the, the wonderful fulfillment nature of what's happening with this quotation. But it's also very important that this is yet another example where John is saying Jesus is God. He's saying, Isaiah saw him, and now you have seen him. And so remember, as we have discussed so many times throughout this book, that is the key question that he's answered. Who is Jesus? He is God. And one final thing that's so fantastic about him quoting Isaiah here, is it shows us yet another example of what we've always tried to teach you here, that the Bible is one big story that all points to Jesus. And this is yet another example. Now, this unbelief portion, let me say just a couple of things about this. Uh, This is mysterious, not in a Scooby-Doo kind of way, but mysterious in the sense of some of the best minds that the church has had for the past 2,000 years have come out in different places on this. Uh, Everybody acknowledges that the way this shakes out, there is a mystery here that we can't fully understand. And I think one of the favorite quotes that I have about this actually comes from Charles Spurgeon, who's one of my favorite preachers, who said that what we're talking about here, which is the intersection of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, are like two train tracks that run parallel Aside one another in scripture and they connect somewhere far in eternity And so the best that we can do is you believe both because the scripture teaches both And i'm going to come back to that in just a moment when we talk about verse 37 again But you're going to see this human element of their unbelief And you're going to see a divine element of their unbelief But let me also say this if you leave tonight And you're like, whew, I'm not sure I fully understand that. Well, you need to know that I kind of feel the same way after working on this all week and thinking about these kinds of things for most of my adult life. So we're going to do the best we can. But if Spurgeon couldn't figure it totally out and said it intersected somewhere in the future, we're going to have to go with that. Now, let's dig back into verse 37 here. This notion here, that, and look at the language. I think every word here is important. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. So the place that, that John begins with this is what I, would, uh, what I would potentially call recalcitrant unbelief in the face of miracle after miracle after miracle. And we've seen this throughout the book, right? It's almost as if, and it didn't happen exactly like this, but it is, it, it is as if... They said, Jesus, do a miracle for us, then we'll believe. So Jesus does 537 miracles. And at the end of 537 miracles, they are still saying, nope, nope, we don't believe. That kind of stubbornness, recalcitrance in the face of glaring evidence, that's what he's talking about here. That this is not unbelief from a lack of information. This is unbelief from a heart level unwillingness. We will not believe this. That's, that's what's happening on the human side of things here. But there's more to it than that. Because now we're digging into verse 38. Look at this. So that, so this is a purpose clause, this happened so that something else would happen. The words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So what John is saying is, these people's recalcitrant unbelief is the fulfillment, or a further fulfillment, if you will, of what Isaiah said so long ago. And so again, when we think about that, that should charge us up and go, Man, this thing really does all fit together. The Bible is one big story. Isaiah saw Jesus back then. He saw the glory of God, and so on and so forth. He is the suffering servant. And that is part of what needs to jump off the page to us here. But let me go just a little bit further on this idea here about unbelief, and then we're going to talk about the divine element of it. I like what Mark Dever had to say about this. He said, Unbelief never involves the mind alone. It is a spiritual state. So this, to some degree, explains why all of us that have ever tried to share the faith with with certain people— Have sat down with them and we've put proof after proof after proof and we've answered all their questions and they can sometimes still look at us and say, no, I am not believing this. Because that's not just an intellectual thing. That's why Christianity is not a religion that can truly uh, (coughs) be advanced at sword point, so to speak. Yet you don't make converts by putting a gun to somebody's head and saying, okay, believe in Jesus. That's not how it works. God has to unlock our hearts so that we would believe. J.C. Ryle talked about this. He said the prevalence of unbelief and indifference in the present ought not to surprise us. It is just one of the evidences of the mighty foundation doctrine, which he called the total corruption of fall of man. How feebly we grasp and realize this doctrine. We only half believe in the heart's deceitfulness. So I think part of what we need to be thinking here at this point is, man, this unbelief stuff is bad. It is really bad. This is terminal spiritual cancer. And we're all born with it. And it is only the grace of God that enlivens and delivers, that allows us to not be in this state. Okay. And I think we all know this. God does this for some, but he does not do this for all. And that's part of what we get into right here with verse 38 and following. Look at this. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest their eyes lest, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn and I would heal them. And that's where it gets a little like, ooh, that's heavy. It's heavy to understand, and it's heavy to think about the implications of that. And so I want to just acknowledge a significant debt right here for the next few minutes from the the good people at the Exalting Christ commentary. uh, Because after the many things I read this week, I kind of like the the vibe of what these guys had to say. So I'm going to dip pretty heavily in and out of this. And so, the, the question here about their inability to believe and the divine elements of it. What is going on there? Well, this is not the first time that we have heard about something like this. In fact, all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 9, or excuse me, 29, God talks about hardening hearts and man's inability to believe. So, it's a similar kind of thing. I'll uh, uh, just read it real briefly. You have seen with your own eyes everything that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh. So boy, doesn't that sound like the gospel of John? You've seen it time after time after time. And to all his officials and to his entire land, you saw with your own eyes the great trials of those and great signs and wonders. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind to understand, eyes to see or ears to hear. And then that same language is picked up in Isaiah 6, which is part of what we just heard quoted a minute ago. Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of the people dull, deaf in their ears, and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their minds. Turn back and be healed. And so what John is saying time after time after time here is the recalcitrant I will not believe is that is the the human, the, the top side of the iceberg, so to speak, And then there is a divine element under it. But here is part of what we can never lose sight of. These people are responsible for their unbelief. And that's that's exactly what he's saying here. And I think that's where he starts. That's why he starts where he starts right there in verse 37. And I think that one of the questions that we have to wrestle with here is, so how does all that work out? And that's where I'm saying, I'm going to give you what I can, but at the end of the day, even at our best, we are going to run out before the train tracks exactly connect. But there is a reason for why this is happening. We get some shades of it, okay? Uh, Here's just a few pieces of it. One of it comes from uh, Romans chapter 9. I think many of us, if you've ever read that, you've wrestled with that. It's the same type of idea. And one of the things that we encounter there is that This world is God's, and he is in sovereign control over everything, and he gets to choose what he wants to do. And some people he chooses to save, and some people he doesn't. And that's his prerogative. Now, is that hard for us to hear sometimes? I believe that it is. But we've got to trust that God in his infinite sovereignty and wisdom It's his planet. He can do what he wants. And I think what that does for us is it 100% highlights and elevates the grace of God. Because going back to what J.C. Ryle said earlier, if we really understand, I mean really understand our spiritual plight before we meet Jesus. One illustration, think of it like this. We're not just flopping around in the water waiting for a life preserver. We are at the bottom of the ocean, completely dead, getting eaten by fish, so to speak, spiritually. And God comes along and pulls us up and puts us on the boat and resurrects us spiritually. When we understand that that is what has happened, then the focus shifts from, okay, I don't really fully understand this, to holy cow, he has saved me from myself. He has saved me from this recalcitrant unbelief that I would have had had he not gotten a hold of me and he brought me back to life so it's not that this question is not important but we do the best we can with it and then I think we're overtaken by a sense of gratitude and a sense of wonder and a sense of thankfulness and a sense of I got to tell other people about this I got to get out there and talk to other people because who knows God might save them But let me give you one other piece on this that I think is helpful, because when I interact with this truth, even though I've been studying it for, goodness, who knows how long, decades, there's always that part of me that is still kind of like, There's there's something about it. And here's what D.A. Carson says that really helps. He says this, God's judicial hardening is not presented as the big D.A. Carson words here capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen now that's a mouthful but can we feel the ethos of what he's saying here? He's not saying, or, or the, the picture that, that sometimes I think we kind of get in our mind is these, these people that we're talking about here were like, Oh, Jesus, please, just one more time. It was the exact opposite. These people couldn't wait to kill him. And he had done countless things. So whatever hardening seems to be taking place here, basically is giving them what they wanted. That's what that's what Carson seems to be saying there. They have chosen this and that is what is playing itself out. Now, let's spend just a little second here, because actually the entire passage is not about this, but this is the the most difficult section, obviously. What do we do with this? Well one piece of it I've already referred to. I think that We wrestle as best we can, intellectually, honestly, spiritual difficulty, all of it that it is, with the challenging nature of this topic. But I think where we've got to land is grace and evangelism. And the only thing I would add to what I said earlier is an expanded view of God. Because if we really get this, God gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it kind of gets to the point where it's like, okay, I'm not going to figure this out. And the fact that I can't figure this out is another pointer to the grace of God. It's another pointer to the greatness of God. It's another pointer to the excellence of God. Because whatever he's doing in all of this, it is something that I can't fully understand. And that shows me how tiny I am and how huge he is. Now, there's one other thing that I wanted to say about this before I moved on. We do get somewhat of a hint, a little bit of insight, because Paul talks about this uh, a little bit in in a different place. When he is talking about um, he preaches a sermon and just like we all see, some people get saved, some people don't. Some people want to hear more about it later, and some people are completely indifferent. But the idea that kind of comes out of that is we see this concept that God uses the hardness of the Jews to bring in the Gentiles. He uses their not listening to bring in people that do listen. And oddly enough, Paul quotes the same passage right here, Isaiah 6.10. And he says, Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And that's Acts 28.28. So again, our picture of God needs to get bigger. How in the world can God use the recalcitrance of these people... And then somehow he plays some role in it, but still they are responsible for it. Mystery there. But then he uses that whole basket to bring in the Gentiles and ultimately advance his plan. I'm telling you, that's only a huge, huge God could do that. And I think that's part of the takeaway here. So we wrestle with it. We believe it. We're challenged by it. We try to understand it as best we can. We're helped by it. We see the grace explosion that has happened in our lives, and we feel immense gratitude. And we get out and talk to everybody that we can, knowing that God will probably not save them all, but he will save some of them. And so the question then becomes on the evangelism piece is, do we know what we are responsible for in that equation. Because we're not responsible for the result. We are responsible for the proclamation. But whatever happens after that with the proclamation is between that person and God. We, we just got to share. We got to talk. We got to love. We got to build relationships. We got to do what we can in the name of Jesus. But ultimately, whether or not they put their faith in Christ is not solely dependent upon how good of a presentation we gave. Now, do we need to do the best we can? You better believe it, of course. But at the end of the day, that helps me sleep at night. I hope it helps you sleep at night because it's not solely dependent upon you. Did you say the right phrase at just the right time, at just the right way? Did we pick the right songs? All that stuff matters, but it's not ultimate. And that's where we've got to trust in this huge God that's using this stuff and he's working out his plan. Okay, so that is 37 to 40. And we're gonna move a little faster through the rest of the passage. Let's pick it up at 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Now I've already kind of talked about this, but I just wanna make one more statement here and I'm gonna put it up there as a principle. What he's illuminating here is the Godness of Jesus, that Jesus is God. And the reason that's so important is for all the reasons you would think it would be. But the, the reason it's so important here in John is because that was the question. That was the, the, the beef, if you will. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? What's he doing? And he keeps saying time and time again, this is who he is. He's God. He's the one that Isaiah saw. He's the one that, proph- that was prophesied would come. This is the man. But now look at this. I find this fascinating and also horrifying. Verse 42. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. And so what he's saying there is there's this large scale wholesale recalcitrance. But a few people expressed some kind of faith in Christ. But I'm not sure it was saving faith. And we'll talk about that in a second. But, but some kind of something toward Jesus but look at this. This is this is so tragic. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And then this is even worse. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, I think if we hear that there's no way we don't hear that with a sense of tragedy. That these people had Jesus right in front of them. They, they had, like, I, I don't know if this is belief in the sense of saving faith. Most commentators seem to say no. But the, reason, the thing that I'm most drawn by and stuck by is the reason why they walked off. They were concerned about what people thought. And they love the glory that comes from man more than God. And I think the principle there is that this is an example, like Judas we had two weeks ago, that we want to avoid. And I think, I mean, I'm asking myself this question. Lord, where do I care too much about what somebody else thinks? Where do I care too much about the glory that anybody could ascribe to me for whatever random reason, where would I care too much about that and not about what you have already said about me in the gospel and the love and kindness that he's put upon me? I don't want to fall into that trap. I don't want to walk away from Jesus because I feel like the fleeting praise of other people is more important. And I think that that is something that we all need to hang on to. And I mean hang on to it in the sense of, I don't think we need to leave here going, oh my gosh, am I even a Christian? I don't think that's the, the goal. But what I'm saying is, the Lord uses cautionary tales like this to keep us toward glory. Kind of like the warning passages in the book of Hebrews, I think, that he uses these warnings to keep us on track. So I think practically when we when we think of this, like, what do, what do we do with this? How do we avoid this? Well, I think the first thing is, is you, you heed the warning. If somebody's telling you, hey, the bridge is out and you're like, okay, I'm going to shift into high and drive 97 miles an hour. I don't think we have to pray about how that's going to turn out poorly. It's going to turn out poorly. This is a warning to us. Hey, mm-mm. you don't want to be like these people. You want to confess Jesus. You want to walk with Jesus. You want to stay on this path. So practically... What does that look like? Well, here's a couple of things. I think you take full advantage of what people have called for many centuries now the ordinary means of grace. That that being a part of this church or a church is super important. Christianity is a group project. It is not an independent study. And we need to stay together. There's safety in numbers. And we need to stay together. Now, on top of that, that's where the other things of community group and listening to the sermons and, and, and getting in deep with other Christians, being a part of gospel culture, those things are all super, super important. Because as we all begin to drift at various points and we're sheep, man, we get wandered off and we, we need other people to come along and be like, no, no, the good, the good grass is over here. Come back over here. And then you got shepherds in the church that help watch out. That, that's part of how we avoid Going off this cliff. And then finally, just paying attention, like Paul says in the, new, the rest of the New Testament, to, to your own life and doctrine. That we're always kind of examining our hearts and saying, okay, where do I need some help? Do I need to talk to somebody about whatever's going on with me? Do I need to talk to somebody in the community group? Do I need to pour this out with my Thrive group? Who can help me deal with this? So that I don't end up in some weird place like these people did. That's just basic Christianity. That we follow Jesus and we stay with the group. All right, let's pick it back up in verse 44 here. So in the midst of all this, Jesus, after making these statements, and, and, and John has said these things now, he cried out and he said, and then watch this turn here. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. So again, this is the the same note over and over and over that, that John keeps playing. And that's on purpose, that Jesus and God the Father are inextricably linked. You can't, it's different members of the Trinity, but the same thing is going on here. And then in verse 46, based on that foundation, he says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So the headline here, and kind of the tone here, is that Jesus came into the world to save the world. And I think part of what's so interesting about this passage is that front section there could leave you going, man, what, what is going on here? And then Jesus is like, no, this is, this is what you've always been, thought, always been thinking is going on. I came to save the world. I came to save the world. And so the appeal there is the same appeal that it is for all of us. That it's always been. That if you have never turned from your sins and trusted in Christ, then you need to do that. Because Jesus came to save. He came to save. And he will take... Any man, woman, boy, or girl that will turn from their sin and trust in Christ, he will take any of us. And I know this because he took me and he took a lot of people that I know and not any single one of us deserved it. Nobody earned it. But Jesus gives it. And if we receive it, we can have it. That's why he came to save the world. And he's going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. So if that really strikes a chord with you tonight, then you don't need to ignore that. And we give people an opportunity to respond. You need to respond. Because God is saying something to you through this teaching tonight. All right, let's hit the home stretch here. There's going to be several principles, and they're going to come kind of quick. So pay attention here. (coughs) Verse 48. The one who rejects me... And does not receive my words as a judge. Okay, so think about what we're talking about here. There's a connection between Jesus and his words and judgment. That this is not like, okay, I heard this on the internet and uh, who knows if that's true. Okay. There's not really a penalty for you ignoring some spam bot's post, right? That was written by AI in the first place. Your life is not gonna be deeply affected. But you ignore Jesus, you're going to be eternally affected. They're two qualitatively different things, and that's what he's saying here. There's an authority connected to his word that comes from God, and that's who he's that's who he's talking about here. So the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge, for the word that I will have spoke will, the word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So that's almost some like persona. Whatever literary device there, my kids would know what this is. (laughs) Where the words are speaking against them on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority. So again, that's the, the same thing that he said. I'm here with divine authority. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So again, Jesus is here with divine authority and a divine message. And then I love this again, it kind of goes back to verse 47 with what he said there about why he came to save. and I know this commandment is eternal life. So what I say, therefore, I say as the father has told me. So what are the principles here? Well, the first one is that Jesus speaks with the father's authority. This is why this this whole thing that exists in our time period of like, oh, I love the the teachings of Jesus and the example of Jesus, but I don't want to follow him. That's not one of the options. You either accept his teachings and his authority and follow him or not. But, but there's, no, there's no third way. Because this is not like somebody at you know, the bookstore that has a, has a self-help where you can just kind of plunder some of this. Jesus' teaching was unique because it was authoritative. And that authority comes from God. That's what he's saying here. He's speaking with the Father's authority. He's not simply a, another uh, Peterson type. Like this is someone speaking with God's authority. But then also with what he's saying there here, the other side of this, is judgment for unbelief is not arbitrary but inevitable. That, that's part of what Jesus is saying here about like, So there's not going to be people that would be like, oh, I I didn't know. If they were standing there in front of him and they were confronted with his truth, that's part of what he's saying. The words will judge them. They're accountable. And then finally, back to what he said before here, even in the midst of like this heavy truth, there's still this theme of grace and glory. Because even in the midst of saying these things about judgment, look back at verse 50. What does he say in the midst of talking about judgment? I know that his commandment is eternal life. So in the midst of warning them, he's still appealing to them. That he's saying, if you turn to this, if you turn to the truth, you will have eternal life. And I'm not making it up. It comes from God the Father. So again, what what do what do we do with that? Well, I think just a couple of things. I think the first one is we think about the authority that Jesus has. The authority that Jesus has. We might struggle with it and wrestle with it, but it's his authority. And second, I think that we need to think about the immense grace and offer that Jesus has. Because again, think back at verse 47, think back at verse 50. He came to save. So if you're here tonight and you want to be saved, you can be saved. If you came in here tonight and you wonder, man, I just don't know where I stand with God. I grew up around the church and I got a bunch of, kind of disconnected beliefs and I don't know how to put them together. I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. You can settle that issue tonight. You came in here tonight and you're like, I don't know what's going on in my life. seems like there's a lot of weird things, but I don't have a lot of purpose and meaning. And it seems like there's this whole, literally had somebody tell me this week, we were having a fantastic conversation. They were like, I knew there was this void in my life. And then I realized that Jesus Was what I needed. And then I trusted in Jesus. And that person's story. That can be your story. If you want to be saved. Jesus will save you. His commandment is eternal life. And the final thing I would say. That for those of us who have already been saved. Who have received this gift that Jesus gives. My hope tonight, in the midst of all the wrestling and questions and so on and so forth, that your picture of God has gotten bigger and that your understanding of the grace of God and the mercy of God in his saving of people like us who did not, res- did not deserve it, one iota, that you would feel even more loved, even more cared for, even more redeemed, even more rescued, even more saved from eternal death and destruction than you did when you got up this morning. Because if we really get how bad we are before we meet Jesus and what it takes for us to become Christians and we sense the mercy of God, friends, that is transformative. It is transformative. And so that is my hope.